as you're putting your hymn book away, uh, I would actually ask you if you grab that hymn, if you'd put it back in your hymnal. We do use those <clears throat> throughout the rest of the month. We've been back into uh, singing a hymn of the month each month. <clears throat> That's the one for this month. So you can stick it back in the hymnal. So we have it for a couple more weeks. If you would like to take one home, we do have a few extra. You can just uh, come find me and I can grab you one afterwards. <clears throat> If you would turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, our text this morning, the first 10 verses of the book. Paul, writing a letter to the church in the city of Thessalonica, is giving them commendation and encouragement about persecution and growth. They're growing in the middle of persecution, and he's writing to encourage them about that and to commend them about this. And ordinarily, you might expect a sermon relating to the Lord's table. I do think it's significant. These folks are suffering on account of their Christian testimony. They're suffering on account of the cross. And here today at the Lord's table, we gather in a few moments, to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We do that here, in this building, in this place. But when we do that in public, sometimes that invites persecution. And you can imagine, as these people obeyed Christ's command to celebrate the Lord's table, that would have had significance. Are we going to obey God and proclaim his death till we come, till he comes? That carried significance for them. Very uh, direct relevance even to their safety? Are people going to persecute us for this? Persecution could define it as pressure to convince you to cave. Persecution is pressure to convince you to cave. When we talk about persecution, we often think in categories that might have been common in the Roman world that this letter would have been written in or something more like in a Muslim country where it's pretty unanimous, maybe religious persecution against Christianity, very social, often very public. We, we say maybe that we expect it to come in our country as morality shifts and you see more news about Christian organizations having all of this pressure come against them. We expect it to come, but it's not everywhere yet. But we think in those terms and we often think, OK, we don't we don't really face persecution. But do you? Help us understand the relevance of this text for us today. I want you to think about what persecution we actually do see in our country and how that might affect you. Maybe it's not severe, but on a personal level. Is there anybody in your life, or have you ever experienced this or heard of this happening, where someone is pressuring you or someone you know to affirm immorality in someone else's life? or at least to be silent about it or indifferent about it. Well, it's my life. I can live my life. You can keep your life to yourself. I'll keep my life to myself. Or, as is more common, growingly common, increasingly common, I want your affirmation of my immorality. Maybe you face reject rejection or insults or hostility towards you when you talk about repentance, when you talk about sin and absolute categories of right and wrong. That happens. Maybe even at work or at school. Have you ever heard this? I'm not a snitch. I'm not going to be a snitch. People want to do things that are dishonest. 
and they don't want you to say anything about it. And they're going to put pressure on you not to say anything about it. And if you do, you're going to receive some pushback. Maybe you know someone who echoes the kinds of things you hear said in public, that it's, it's violent to say that God created only two genders, or it's ignorant to say a woman shouldn't kill her unborn baby, or it's hateful to tell someone living in immorality that they should repent of their sin. Pressure to cave on what's true comes verbally, it comes relationally, it comes socially. It really does happen in our country, and it may not always be in a direct response to the preaching of the gospel, but it's all kind of connected. And you see this, I think, even more broadly, indirectly, perhaps, against Christians. I do believe the devil in our country has kind of opened his whole arsenal of weapons. Here's what I'm going to use against you, Christian, if you open your mouth and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and that you must turn from your sin. Look what I'm doing to this person. He gets deplatformed. He gets demonetized. He gets, I use this term, doxed. All of your public information put out there for people to come and abuse you and harass you because of some stand you take. Maybe it's not against you, but the devil just holds it out there. He's not persecuting unbelievers. It's targeted at Christians. If you open your mouth, I'm coming for you. The devil intimidates. The devil wants your silence. He wants to put pressure on you. I believe even the devil can manipulate knowledge. Do you think the devil knows that Christians in particular might fear something like a central banking system? You know, when you read the Bible and you see that it's going to come to the point where you've got to have this and that, if you're going to be able to buy and sell, well, what if this happens? What if this happens? Do you think the devil knows that and he's trying to strike fear in people's hearts? You bet he does. And whether or not, I'm not saying that that's what's happening or that's how it's going to happen. It's just another tool to intimidate people into silence. It's different kinds of pressure to get you to cave. So when Paul writes to give encouragement about growth in persecution, not just silence, actual increase and progress spiritually, you see how relevant that is, even already for us in our country. You need encouragement and help. You see it right now, persecution. Maybe not personally, maybe a close relative, maybe it's indirect. Maybe you wonder sometimes, why do Christians have to go through it? Why does it have to be this way? The Bible gives us a number of answers as to how God uses persecution for good. But here, in these opening verses of the letter of 2 Thessalonians, I want you to see that God uses saints who endure persecution to teach others. God uses saints who endure persecution to teach others. The title of the message this morning is the powerful testimony of a suffering Christian. So how? How does God use me and my suffering to teach people? How does a saint who endures persecution teach others? There are three lessons I want you to see this morning that a suffering saint puts people in mind of. And one of the main points are that if you're growing in persecution, that means people makes people want to give God thanks, Christians. As you're enduring in persecution, you remember, everybody's reminded that God intends to refine people through persecution. It's a good lesson. But then everybody, 
unbelievers and believers alike, when they see your patience and persecution, they realize it's evidence that's going to stand against them before God that Christ is coming and God's going to judge. You see that in these verses. Let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to, and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed or our testimony to you was believed. God uses saints who endure persecution to teach others. First note, your growth in suffering reminds Christians that God deserves thanks. This is one important lesson we all need, that God deserves praise and thanks for growth. When you're growing spiritually, when you're bearing spiritual fruit, who gets the credit for that? You. Circumstances, God. And the reason your growth in persecution puts this in people's mind is because if that's happening, it's indisputable evidence that this is God's work. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Why should we give thanks to God? Not only why should we give thanks, but why to God? Because God deserves the credit if you're growing in persecution. And what, what does this growth look like? If we're, if we're thinking of ourselves as trees, and I'm talking about growth, it's springtime here. What fruit is coming out in these people's lives as they're being persecuted? Look in the verse 3. Your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. It's the fruit of faith. It's the fruit of love. These are fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace long-suffering, all of these things. Faith, what, what is Paul talking about? Well, these people who are being persecuted for preaching the gospel, they have confidence about Christ's death and burial and resurrection. They're a bold witness. They have faith. They're not being pressured into silence. They're growing, and they're growing stronger. And their love towards one another, what, what is Paul talking about? Well, they're being pushed out at work. They're being, people aren't willing to do business with them anymore. People are stealing from them. They're being extorted. This is what persecution looks like for them. But in the church, what are they doing? They're providing for each other financially. They're supporting one another relationally as family members turn away from them. They're serving one another in ministry. This is love towards one another. And it's, it's not just a little bit of growth here and there. Paul uses this word flourishing. Your faith is greatly enlarged. It's flourishing faith. It's abounding love. And you can kind of get a sense of what Paul is rejoicing at here. He's just left these brand new Christians just a couple of weeks ago. 
Have you ever gone on vacation for a couple of weeks and you're trying to grow plants at home and you forgot to ask somebody to go water them for you? And it's like, oh man, it's just going to be a brown wilty thing when I come home and you come home and that thing's just bursting with tomatoes or whatever. It's like green and vibrant. And you're like, how did this happen? This is what Paul is saying. He, they're under all of this pressure. All of the circumstances are aligned against them. And he's saying, you're abounding in fruit. You're a flourishing plant. And this is really true to life and what scripture says, isn't it? You remember the parable of the sower that Jesus gives? The sower goes out and He's sowing seed and some falls on rocky soil and the bird comes and snatches it up. And Jesus explains later, that's the devil coming and taking the word before it even has a chance to bear fruit. There's some that falls on other ground and it immediately springs up, but it doesn't really have good roots. So as soon as affliction and persecution comes, it wilts. That's what Jesus says. It's actually the same two words in Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter 13. Wilting. And leaving the faith when persecution and affliction come, that is normal. That's natural. That's what should happen if you don't have the life of God in you. But bearing fruit, flourishing, flourishing faith, abounding love when persecution comes, that is a miracle of grace. That means God has torn up the soil of your heart, and that word that was preached, it went onto good soil. And God bore fruit, some 100, some 60, some 30. Praise God for that. God deserves credit for that. You can actually see in the text that Paul is saying it's actually obligatory and appropriate to thank God for growth in those who suffer. Verse three, we ought, we don't really use that word a lot, ought, we ought to do this. We should do this. We're obligated to do this, to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. It's appropriate for us to do this. It's necessary. It's appropriate. If God is hanging on to you when you're being persecuted and you're bearing fruit when you meet this kind of pressure, rejoice. The only explanation for that is that this is a work of God. And we should thank God for that ourselves when we see it in ourselves. We should thank God for that when we see it in other people. He deserves credit. So as you grow under persecution, people are put in mind that God deserves credit for that. God uses saints who endure persecution to teach others that he deserves credit for sustaining them. But there's more that God uses you to teach other people. Notice second, your steadiness, not just your growth, but your steadiness in suffering, in persecution, reminds Christians that God intends refinement. God planned this, and God intends to do this in all of his people. So we're not talking so much about the spiritual fruit. We're talking about the stability of the whole tree, right? Endurance, perseverance, steadiness against resistance. What is he saying? Well, endurance in suffering is actually proof of salvation. Look at verse 4. We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance, that's the word, and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. I believe what Paul is saying here, if I can explain this, make this clear, is very much in line with what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom 
of heaven. Paul had to go through this. You see all through the New Testament, the believers are saying, we have to go through suffering. We have to go through persecution. It must be on the road of persecution that we come to the kingdom. You remember when Paul is stoned and left for dead outside of the city of Lystra and everybody's standing around like wondering if he's dead and he stands up and he walks back into the city. What does he say to those people? He's probably got all the marks on his body from literally being stoned to death. Acts 14, 22. What does he tell them? This, how's this for a sermon? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You're not going to forget that. When this guy who's dragging himself off the ground says, this is the way it's got to be. Endurance and suffering is proof of salvation. James says, consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking and nothing. But this, this endurance on their part that should be evidence to them that, okay, God did save you. God is putting you through this. It's leading to a report to other churches, not because Paul's taking credit for it, but he's boasting about what God's doing in them despite the devil's best attempts. We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance. It's awesome to see God overcoming the power of darkness, isn't it? The devil throws everything he has, and these weak little Christians who have no reason to resist it, it's just like it hits him and it bounces off. It's like, this is awesome. Keep going. So if you're experiencing this kind of pressure, don't stop. Don't give up. Keep going and keep your eyes up. Because where are you headed? This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Admit to God that you need his help, but admit to God that you need that refinement too. I, God, you planned this. I need your help. I know that you intend for me to go through this. It's really a way of thinking that we should develop to know that suffering and really persecution is necessary. It's not accidental. It's not incidental to the Christian life. It's purposeful. And although God is not, does not sin, he doesn't solicit people to sin, God controls that and he uses that in this life to purify us and fit us for glory. We don't always understand, do we? why is this person being such a jerk? Like, why, why do I have to go through this? It, it doesn't always like click in our minds and it's not one-to-one, -one. but it's never random. It's never out of God's control. It's exactly what God appoints for his people, even if it is at the hands of wicked men. But it's not just proof to you of your salvation. It really is, I think it clarifies that it's a help to others. It's good to make the occasions of our thanksgiving to God opportunities to encourage other people. They're not just experiencing the persec persecution, they're bearing it nobly, victoriously. They're, they're strong. Isn't it really just human nature to feel like you can do it once you've seen it done? You know, sometimes you have to motivate kids this way. I, I know you can do it, buddy. You can do it. I know you can. And then they see that they can do it. And it's like, huh, okay. And they're willing to try. I cannot. I've heard that. Daddy, I cannot. I cannot do it. Buddy, I know you can. 
you can do it. You can do it. And sometimes we need, and you see this from the time we're very young. And sometimes you can't, I can't do it. Nobody can do it. And then you see somebody do it. And it's like, okay, Lord, help me. I think I can do it. When we're, when we're thanking God for helping us and then we're encouraging other people, that helps other people do the same. Have you ever thought that you might just be a tool in God's hand to encourage someone else? Maybe you can't figure out what God is doing through your suffering. But maybe God's using your life to strengthen someone else. He loves us dearly. We're not just servants, but we are servants. We are creatures to give him glory. Perhaps the, the persecution you're enduring that someone else isn't, that's designed to help them for something that they're going to face in the future. There's hope in that, isn't there? To realize that God could be using you. It's kind of a, a fortification to keep going. So these are two lessons primarily aimed at God's people. God uses saints who endure persecution to teach others. And if you're growing in persecution, God gets credit for that. And, and we need reminded of that. And we should thank God. But as you endure and you're strong and stable in the faith, we're, we're all reminded that persecution is the plan of God or his own. But there's a, a third and final lesson that's given a bit extended treatment in verses 5 through 10. And this is aimed to believers and unbelievers alike. Your patience in suffering reminds everybody that Christ will return and God will judge. Paul shows how our endurance teaches this in a number of ways. First, suffering in verse 5 really shows that God's judging those in darkness right now, as evidenced by your suffering. He says, this is a plain indication. The word you could say is actually proof. This is a, a plain token. In our, in our you know, vernacular, we might say, this is a smoking gun. When we say that, we mean like it's indisputable evidence to everybody. Everybody knows the person who's holding the smoking gun just pulled the trigger, right? This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. What is he saying? Well, this whole situation, persecution from unbelievers, steadiness for unbel from believers, that indicates something. It proves something about God's judgment. What did Jesus say in John 3, 19? This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. This is the judgment. God sent light that was supposed to help people, but they actually hated it. That was God's judgment on them. So the endurance of these Christians under the hatred of those in darkness really proves two things. It proves that God is judging the darkness. When God puts light in a place and people hate it and persecute it, God is judging the darkness. But it also proves that God judged Christ to bring those people into the light. The only reason sinners are in the light at all is because God was right to judge sin in Christ so that he could rescue them. He's the just, he's just and the justifier. He punished sin. He had to, he's just, but he's also the one who forgives sin. How can God forgive sin? And be just. He has to punish sin. God does punish sin. He punishes it in Christ. God's just to bring men into the light. And he's just, he's right to judge those who hate the light. And for you, he says, the suffering is just preparation for glory. 
so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Suffering doesn't earn heaven for you. It doesn't make you worthy of heaven. You can't earn your way to heaven, even by suffering persecution. It doesn't work that way. He says, we suffer persecution so that God will pronounce us worthy. Maybe that sounds strange to you, but if you're in Christ, you have eternal life. You are guaranteed access to glory by the blood of the lamb, aren't you? But it's still going to happen as God declares it so. God's going to look at you in Christ and say, blood bought, come. God's going to count you worthy. You can be sure of that. Worthy of the kingdom. Come in. But that might feel a little bit distant. Like God's just making you a project that he doesn't care much about, which is far from the truth. So Paul expands on this a bit to assure them that God cares right now about their suffering. He sees it and he notes it. Verse six, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. Christ will come and God will put an end to all suffering. You know that time marker here at the end of verse seven, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. He's talking about the time of the end. But what's Paul saying about that time? It's right. It's in keeping with God's law in his evaluation to do this. And what is God just waiting to do when he sends Christ? What grieves him right now? What does he intend to set right at that time when God sees people afflict his saints? He intends to take vengeance on that. God knows. He cares. Paul's assuring these suffering Christians, saying, you can't take vengeance, but God sure will. What do you hear kids say sometimes when they're getting picked on? My dad's going to come beat you up. Did you ever say that as a kid? Just wait till my big brother gets here. He's going to beat you up. You know, you can't do anything about it. You're a helpless first grader or whatever. You're getting picked on. My dad's stronger than your dad. But you have this hope for for justice, and you just feel like your dad's going to come and he's going to set it right. But it's not just the justice that he points them to. It's actually rest and relief. It's just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Freedom is the idea of the word. Imagine, I think a good illustration of this is the Israelites in Egypt. They're being oppressed. They're being afflicted. It's not really religious persecution. It's just wicked oppression. But they're being oppressed. They're crying out to God. Pharaoh's just a bad guy, right? He's wicked. He hates God. He, he's proud. He disregards God. And then God brings the plagues. And finally, that hard-headed king lets him go. But then he chases him, right? The people are terrified. They've seen justice, but he's still alive. He's chasing them, and he runs right into the Red Sea. And what does God do to that man who threw babies in the Nile? God drowns him in the Red Sea. Him and his, all, all his armies. That's justice. That's retribution. That's vengeance. And what was on the other side of the Red Sea for the people? Of course, it was a wilderness, and they ended up being there a long time. That was their own fault. But what, what were they headed towards? They were headed towards the promised land. They were headed towards the land of rest. 
There was vengeance and there was relief. There was freedom. That's the image here. So trust God in your suffering. He's, he's, he's not unmoved by your pain. He cares. Don't believe the lie of the devil that God has forsaken you. This isn't just an image of Christ, though, returning in a judge's robe. Declaring people right or wrong. He really comes as a warrior. And the image here, the picture here is it just sparks your imagination. When the Lord Jesus, verse 7, will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, Christ will come to conquer and judge those who rebel against him. He's going to come in an unmistakable way that all men will see. And if you take the word of all the people in the Bible who, when they see one of God's mighty, fearsome angels, they fall down like they're dead. It's going to be a terrifying sight because it's going to be a whole army of them. But those angels won't even be the most impressive sight, right? I don't know exactly what this looked like, but the prophet Daniel saw a glimpse into heaven one day and he said this, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. What does John see when he turns around on the Isle of Patmos and he sees the Son of Man in all his glory? He's glowing. He's gleaming. He's got legs like burnished bronze. He's got eyes like a flame of fire that can see right through you. John falls down like he's dead. He's going to be the warrior who comes. He's got justice and truth written on his thigh. He's strong. He's mighty. He comes for his own. He comes to set all things right. Everyone's going to worship him. They're either going to be terrified and they're going to want to run or they're going to look and say, yes, Lord Jesus, come quickly, bring me home. And he's going to come dealing out judgment and punishment against the disobedience. It's full justice. It's not just random. He's going to be precise in his dealing. It's going to be punishment according to deeds. It's evidence-based. And Paul uses an interesting phrase here to those who do not obey the gospel. Why obey? Why, why? What is he talking about? Disobedience? Well, someone said salvation is a gift to receive. The gospel is a command to obey. The message itself is believe and repent for eternal life. Here's the gift. Receive it. But you must believe and repent. Paul wrote in Acts 17, therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You can, you can disagree with God about the evidence if you want. You can say Jesus never rose from the dead, but that's the evidence. God punished him on the cross. He was buried according to the scriptures. He's rose again. After three days in the grave, according to the scriptures, that's the evidence. It's true. If you don't want to believe that it's true, that's fine, but you're wrong. And it's going to stand against you. You must believe it. It's just your unbelief speaking. God furnished the proof. He told you about it. He called you to confess it. 
This is what Paul was doing. He said in Romans 1, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. God calls you today to know him and to obey the gospel by repenting of sin and trusting in Christ as Lord. And if you don't, that's disobedience to him and he will judge that. And what is the judgment? It's, it's sober. It's eternal and unending and unrelenting punishment in hell. Look at verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It's destruction. It's not annihilation. You will consciously experience it forever, unending. There's never any relief or rest. There's pain and sorrow and regret and shame. And it's separation. The phrase is from God's face. God will turn from you. There will be no no light of his pleasure or his presence in that place. What is the the glory of his power? God's power is beautiful and creative and and pleasurable. There's going to be none of that there. There's only rejection, separation, you're not going to learn about God in hell. You're only going to experience his wrath. But God's not sending Christ just as a warrior, but also as a husband and a savior and a deliverer of his people. So there's something else wonderful going on in this scene. That's what will happen to those who do not obey the gospel. And I would call you today, if you have not obeyed the call to repent and believe in Christ, I would call that today needs to be the day of your salvation. Jesus said that you must turn from your sin and believe in him as the only way. That's what stands before you, the justice of God. But once you do what stands before you, verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Jesus comes to be glorified in connection with his people and for them to marvel at his appearing, his beauty, his strength, his righteousness. So what is Paul saying here? It's really a wonderful picture. Not only will Jesus himself be full of glory, all the bright radiance of who he is, but it'll even be a more marvelous thing to see his people with him, rescued, redeemed, with him, like him, made new, rejoicing at his appearing. Can we say this? That completes the scene of his glory when his people come to be with him. That's how much he loves his people. He comes to be glorified in connection with his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. If I could illustrate it this way, on July 5th, 1987, at the tennis final of the Wimbledon Championships in London, England. The underdog Australian tennis player, Pat Cash, beat the world number one tennis player at the time to become the champion of that prestigious tournament. Maybe you remember this. It was the tradition, and still is, at that British tennis tournament for, at that time, His Royal Highness, the Duke of Kent, to present the winner of Wimbledon with the trophy. And famously, 
the Duke's presentation, he's royalty. It's never delayed. Never delayed. But on this day, champion Pat Cash wanted to share the glory of his win with all those who had been a part of his success. He knew he didn't get there by himself. And so he climbed some 30 feet up the grandstand over the flimsy roof of the commentary shed to, to share a hug and a celebration with his father, Pat Sr., and numerous other friends and family. So despite the, the decorum of the day and the surprise of making the Duke of Kent wait to present the trophy, Pat Cash's family was glorified in him. Certainly they were marveling at him and his athletic accomplishment on the court, but also they were honored in connection with him as the attention of that cheering crowd at Wimbledon was directed in part to those who completed that glorious picture of his success. He had a coach. He had parents who took him to tennis practice, paid for all of it through years. They were glorified in him. He was glorified in connection with them. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? And what's the way to get to that day? There's hope here. Marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Paul came to Thessalonica. He preached the gospel. He preached about hell. He preached about Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners, risen again for their justification. They must turn from their sin and believe in him. If you do believe that testimony, you will be among that number who are there marveling with him, marveling at him. That's the hope. This, of course, is very appropriate, I believe, today, because at the Lord's table, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what Paul instructed. That's what Jesus instructed. Christ died for sinners, and he's coming again. We need to remember that. We must proclaim him as Lord so men will be saved before it's too late. Because there will come a time when it is. So do you ever keep silent because you're afraid of what will happen? Do you ever do things to avoid uh, discomfort that will come because of your faith if you really live it? Just know that there's going to be pressure against you to cave. It's coming. It's here. But don't fear it. You don't need to fear it. God intends it. God uses saints who endure persecution to teach others. Your growth in persecution reminds folks to praise God, and that's good. And when your patient went wronged, when you endure suffering, Christians are reminded that, you know, God intends this for me too. And when you're faithful despite the pressure, you're patient, you Everybody's reminded that Jesus is coming again and God will judge finally at that time. Enduring persecution is a testimony to the gospel. So God will use you to teach others if you suffer for the sake of Christ and endure it by his grace. And we do need his grace. We need it. Can't do it without him. It's, it's only natural for us to give up against that kind of resistance. But it's supernatural. Supernatural, sovereign grace 
to resist it firm in the faith because that's God holding you till the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the assurance that you're with us in trials and certainly in persecution. And we need you to be. We know that we would fail against it. And often when we know the pressure's there, we do fail. But I pray that you would make us bold. Forgive us for those times when we've been cowardly. And when we have tried to hide the, the, the truth of the hope that's within us. Make us bold as we keep our eyes on Christ, certainly as we understand how you may even use suffering in your hands for your purposes. Pray that we would testify to Christ by our lives. Pray this in Christ's name.